Ever gets old listening to stories of how God does good work in us and takes brokenness and turns it into blessing? It's just a good thing. Thank you guys for uh, your transparency and vulnerability to share. This morning, um, we are finishing up on our journey that's been called Uncovering Sexuality, and it's been a fun journey, interesting, fun. You're allowed to say fun. Matt said fun in the first week. So, hey, today I want to talk as we sort of conclude things or maybe even sort of land the plan on this series but open the conversation. I want to talk about sex in the light. And what today really is is a chance to talk about some of the things we haven't touched on yet, some of the questions that, that you've had, some of the questions you wrote in, and to talk about them in the light of the gospel, to shine the truth of God's word on some of our, our places of struggle and some of our questions. So this morning I'm going to start with a word that uh, is at the very center of biblical sexual understanding, and that's the word covenant. Covenant. Uh, Covenant, it seems like a you know, holy big Bible word's Batman, right? It seems like a big word, but really it's not. It's just a very a, a simple word that defines the ki- a kind of relationship. Actually, a covenant is a relationship where the us, the we, is more important than the me. A covenant is not about what can I get from you, it's about how can I contribute to us. Now, on the flip side, sort of a modern-day counter to the covenant relationship is the consumer relationship. And a consumer relationship is simply about product exchange. A consumer relationship says, I'll give you this if you give me that. A consumer relationship says, we can have a relationship... But if you don't meet my needs, or if I can get my needs met better somewhere else, then I'm out of here, right? Then I will make a change. Now, how does this relate to sex? Here's how. The Bible says very clearly that sex is a covenant good, not a consumer good. That sex only works right, that it only accomplishes what God designed it to accomplish when it is used inside a covenant relationship, which of course the Bible defines as marriage. Friends, this is why sex outside of marriage and in cohabitation in particular, living together before you are married, this is why that arrangement is so terribly destructive. A lot of questions about this written in on the cards. If we live together, aren't we as committed as married people? Isn't marriage just a piece of paper? What's the big deal about waiting until you get married? Why should I reserve sex for marriage? It's just a piece of paper. Can't we love and be committed to each other without a piece of paper? Friends, here's the big deal about the piece of paper. It stands for something. There's something behind it. I I mean, think about it this way. The check your employer gives you at the end of the month is just a piece of paper, but it stands for something pretty important, doesn't it? In fact, if at the end of the month you go to your boss and say, hey, I didn't get paid, and she says, no, it's no big deal, it's just a piece of paper, you're going to say, yeah, no, I, I actually don't need the piece of paper, but I do need the thing the paper stands for to happen, i.e., that money better hit my account. A marriage certificate is just a piece of paper, but getting married, what the paper stands for is so much more. Here's the problem with the marriage is just a piece of paper argument. It's unbelievably stupid. Marriage is not just a piece of paper. Marriage is a promise. Marriage is a commitment. Marriage is a public legal vow that says, in this shaky, unstable, chaotic world, there is someone you can count on for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. You can count on me. And getting back to the whole covenant versus consumer relationship, I need you to hear this today, especially if you are a young person. When you decide to live together before you are married, when you enter into a sexual relationship outside of that covenant, at least be honest enough to know and admit this. 
you are entering a consumer relationship. Why? Because until you are married, until you are committed, until you are legally bound together before God and others, you'll be free to ask and always tempted to ask, is this person good enough for me? Or could I get an upgrade? Now, the nice way of saying this is, of course, we're just making sure that we are compatible, right? But what that really means is this. Think about it. I'm trying to figure out whether or not you're good enough for me to marry. Do you meet my needs at an acceptable level? Because my needs are actually above the relationship. That's why I haven't committed to the relationship yet. And that's a consumer relationship when you put needs above relationship. So what is sex in a situation like this? What is sex in the middle of a consumer relationship? It's just one more consumer product. It's just one more place where you are marketing, where you are auditioning. It's one more venue in which you are asking each other, are you good enough for me or could I do better? This is one of the reasons, by the way, why all of a sudden the secular world is suddenly waking up and beginning to say what the Bible has been saying all along. The empirical evidence is in, and it now overwhelmingly proves this. People who live together before they get married are more likely to divorce than people who don't. Friends, which goes against sort of our common modern 21st century American sort of common sense, right? Of course you try it out. It'll be more likely to work if you can try it first. But that's not what the studies say. Why? Because when you live together without getting married, you build consumerism, not covenant, as the foundation of your relationship. You teach yourselves. You learn to live together as consumers. The very foundation of relationship says, now we consume for each other. And that is a very difficult trend to reverse. Friends, unlike covenant, what consumerism says is this. When you are no longer meeting my needs, it's time for an upgrade. I'm out of here. It's done. Now, let let me point out real quickly here this. Consumer relationships are not always bad. All of us have consumer relationships. I have a consumer relationship with AT&T. If Verizon offers me a much better deal, I will drop AT&T in a minute. We have a relationship, but it is definitely built on them meeting my needs. Consumer relationships are okay, friends, but my marriage is not a consumer relationship. Why is living together such a big deal? Why does the church get so worked up about it? Why are we so rigid and tight and traditional? Here's why. It undermines the very thing that is at the core of what marriage is all about. Covenant relationship. Now, before you married folks out there get too snooty, um, get all self-righteous on me, let me say this. There is perhaps no area where I see married folks living like consumers more than in this area of sex and sexuality. We are just... As guilty. So don't get an attitude just yet. I know this, friends. Why? Because I myself am married. I have years of pastoral experience. And I know this just quite simply from the questions you all wrote on your cards. And there was a whole slew of them. I would summarize them. They all kind of sounded a little bit different, various ways and forms. But the basic same general question went like this. What do I do... When I'm married to someone whose sexual needs, desires, abilities, wants, and willingness is different than mine, less than mine, or greater than mine, always wants to, or never wants to, how can I possibly survive this? How can a marriage where I don't get my sexual desires met possibly ever work out? Well, I think the answer from the scriptures uh, very simply and clearly is this. Approach this area of your marriage, your sex life, the same way you are called to approach every area of your marriage. Covenantally. Covenantally. In a way that says, I will adjust to you. 
Because I've made a promise, a promise to the relationship. And the relationship is more important than my needs and desires. Paul says it this way in Ephesians. He's talking here about marriage. This is like the crowning foundational statement about how to approach marriage in the New Testament. In every single way. Here's what he says. Submit to one another. Submit to one another. Friends, that's That's covenantal relationship in a phrase. Again, consumer relationship says my needs are actually more important than the relationship itself. But a covenant says you, your needs, our relationship is a higher priority to me than my personal needs and desires. Now, I want to say this real quickly. Just a quick kind of little caveat. I don't have time to unpack this too much, but I do want to point this out. If two people get into a relationship, one as a consumer and the other as a covenanter, that will be bad for who? Yeah, everyone. Um, Actually, it will be mostly bad for the covenanter. The covenanter in that situation will get exploited. right? Because they will be thinking like, I'm in it for us, I'm in it for you. And the other person was like, great, I'll just keep taking what you're given for me. In order for covenant to work, both parties have to covenant. We see this all over the scriptures. All right. Just sort of an important side point there, but I I wanted to offer it to you. Let me give you an example, though, of where Paul applies this this covenant concept, this submit-to-one-another concept, specifically to sex in marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, This is a letter Paul writes to the church at Corinth. This is a church that is in the middle of a culture with crazy sexual values. Sexual values and ideas that are pulling people out and away from, all over the map, as far as they can get from covenantal marital sex. Um, And the church now is asking some pretty serious questions. What does marriage look like as a follower of Jesus in this culture? What does sex look like in marriage as a follower of Jesus? And here's what Paul writes. He writes this in 1 Corinthians 7.4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Does that sound like radical, crazy language to you? It did to them. But let me be real clear here. Paul is not promoting an attitude that says, now that we are married, I have the right to get all my sexual needs and desires met because I own your body. You have to do whatever I want you to do. No, that's not what Paul is after here at all. What Paul is offering the Corinthians is covenantal language. What he's saying to married folks is this, even in your sexual relationship. Submit to one another. Give yourself, yield yourself, lay down your agenda and perspective and submit your needs and wants and reservations and fears and struggles and expectations to one another. In other words, husbands, take a posture that sounds like this. Not my wants, not my needs in this area, but yours. Wives approach the marriage this way. Not what works best for me, but what works best for us. Remember back in week two of this series, we talked about how Satan, the enemy, the fox, wants to lead us away from God's plan and vision um, for our sexuality. And if you remember, there's kind of a series of steps that the enemy uses to lure us outside of and away from God's plan. Step number one was ingratitude. This idea that um, we don't focus on all that we have and all that we can do. We begin to focus on what we don't have and what we can't do. And then step two was about getting us to let our desires, our own personal desires and feelings drive our attitudes and actions and behaviors instead of letting God's vision drive, letting that be the goal. Like we set our own agenda instead of letting God set the agenda. The enemy says, don't listen to what God says. Listen to what you want and what you desire. Make your determinations from there. And I, I bring this up because uh, several of you, several of you very brave folks, ask questions like this. Is it wrong to be aromantic? What if I don't have sexual desire? What if like, my sex drive just isn't there? And, and here's the deal, friends. If, if God's vision for your sexuality in marriage is this path 
that leads you together towards peace and joy and satisfaction and togetherness. And I purposely chose a path because it, it, you know, it speaks motion and progress because you will grow and move and change together, right? But if that's God's vision, this path that leads to something together, friends, some of us have desires that would want more than God's vision or plan. That would seek to take us beyond God's plan for our sexuality. But others of us, others of us have desires that would want less. That would tempt us to embrace a life shy of God's plan for our sexuality. And again, what Paul says is this. Don't let your strong desire, your over-desire, or your weak desire dictate the sexual relationship. Whether you have too much desire or not enough, your desire, great or small, is not the determining factor. God's vision is move your life towards God's vision for your marriage, for your sexuality, whether that means he wants more from you or less from you. So, all right, Pastor Dave, break that down for me. I mean, like, get to the bottom line. If I'm married, how many times a week? I mean, come on, I thought this series was going to be practical and helpful, and I need a number. We're going home after this, right? Um, I understand. That's what you want from me. I can't give it to you. In fact, I, I told this story in the first service and I hadn't planned on it, but I, I'll never forget being in marriage counseling with my wife. We're like, you know, young and excited to be married and we're sitting there and the pastor who's doing our counseling was like a mentor friend of mine. It's just a guy I looked up to so much and he walked us through all these areas of marriage and preparing us and at one point he asked, you know, all right, let's talk about um, like the sex relationship and some of your hopes and dreams and expectations and um, how often do you think you might expect to want to have sex in any given week as a married person? And I remember like he looks to me to answer first and I thought about it for a second and I said, hmm, 21? 21 times a week would be nice. And then he looked at Amy, and she did not say 21. So we had some work to do. Right? Um, friends, I cannot give you enough. If you want to know how many times a week, here's my answer. My answer is this. If you're a married person in this room, submit to one another. Covenant together. Commit to covenanting, covenanting together and see where that leads you. Every couple will be different in this area. Every couple supposed to be. Covenant together. Submit to one another and see where God takes you on this journey as you continue to do it. And so now Paul, he's, he's speaking to the church at Corinth. And in, in this case, he's specifically addressing the temptation to let a lesser desire drive the relationship. To sort of kind of move away from God's vision on this side of the line. And he continues to instruct the church and he says this. This is verse 5. Do not deprive each other sexually, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, let me pause here for a second and make a statement that I hope is obvious to many of you who are here and listening this morning. Intimacy in marriage, including physical intimacy, is not always easy. It's not automatic. It's not something that just happens. Growing in this area of your relationship will involve vulnerability and honesty and humility and talking and listening and learning and challenge and deep sensitivity for your spouse. So again, let me tell you how not to use this verse. This verse is not a weapon. This verse is not a trump card to force your spouse into doing something. Married folks out there, I don't know if you know this. I think you do. Um, Singles, I'll prepare you for this as well. But here's the truth. One of you in the relationship has a higher sex drive than the other. Now, the common understanding of this is that it's always the man, right? Men have higher sex drives than women. Actually, that is not true. Research shows time and time again that... In one out of every five couples, 20%, in 20% of couples out there, the female has the higher sex drive than the male. And I bring this up because I want to speak to you for a minute if you're one of those couples. That can be a really tough place to be in our world. That can be a, you can feel extremely isolated. If you're a woman in that situation, that can be hard, that can be difficult, that can be damaging to your self-esteem. If you're a man, you can feel 
when you're around other guys, like, what's wrong with me? I want to say to you very clearly today, you're not weird. There's nothing wrong with you. That's just how you are. That's just how your relationship is. It is just fine. You're not the majority, but you are 20% of the population. And your relationship has unique, special challenges and blessings, just like everyone's relationship. But one of you in the marriage has a higher sex drive than the other. And this verse is not here so that you, the higher sex drive partner, can lord it over your spouse. The heart of God in this verse, hear it, listen to this, friends, is this. Don't neglect this part of your relationship. If you are a married person in this room, do not neglect the sexual, physical part of your relationship. Why? Why? Why is Paul so adamant about this? Why does he speak to this so very strongly? Here's why. Because sex is like the sacrament of marriage. Now what's a sacrament? A a sacrament is an external visible sign of an internal invisible reality. An external visible sign of an internal invisible reality. Our two sacraments in in the church are what? Baptism and the Lord's Supper, communion, right? Right. Uh, they are, are these external visible things that we engage in so that we can be reminded of the fact that Jesus, through his death and resurrection on the cross, gives us new life, gives us relationship and connection and freedom and grace before God. So sex, friends, also in the same way, is sacramental in that it externally reminds us that in... Just like, um, in the same way that we completely give ourselves physically to our spouse, we have also given ourselves to them in every other way. See, when you say, I'll give myself to you completely physically in the sex act, we say, hey, this is just representative of the fact that I've given you everything. I've given you myself emotionally and legally and financially and spiritually and intellectually, and the list goes on. Friends, listen to what one scholar I read this week wrote about sex and marriage. This is beautiful. This will change your view of what sex and marriage is supposed to look like. He says, sex and marriage becomes a covenant renewal ceremony. It becomes a commitment apparatus. When you have sex, you're getting married all over again. It's like saying, I'm giving you my body as a token of how I've given you my entire life. I'm opening to you physically as a symbol of the fact that I've opened to you in every other way. In this context, sex becomes a deepening thing, a nurturing thing. It's like covenant cement. It's like covenant glue. It's a covenant renewal ceremony. And so Paul says, don't. Just because it can be difficult and complicated and stressful and sometimes clunky and routine and awkward and even embarrassing, don't lose sight of how God can and wants to use sexual intimacy in your marriage to bring you into new and deeper levels of oneness with your spouse. And again, friends, I'll just confess the church has not always done a good job of saying this, of promoting this, of encouraging this. In fact, because we live live in such a highly sexualized, sex-obsessed culture, sometimes the message that the church sends sounds like this. No, bad, beware, don't. And so... Unconsciously, many Christians carry this feeling with them into marriage that sex in some way is dirty and ugly and shameful. That's the message of the church oftentimes. In fact, check this out. Between the 3rd and 10th centuries, the church issued edicts to forbid husbands and wives from having sex on Thursdays, because that was the day of Christ's arrest, And then on Fridays, because that was the day of his death. And then on Sundays, out of remembrance for the saints. And then eventually the church said, no sex relations between husbands and wives during the 40 days of Lent. And then during the 40 days of Advent. And no sex during the 40 days of Pentecost. In fact, they added so many days prohibiting sex that if you were to follow the church calendar, there were only 44 potential days a year available for marital sex. Now, some of you are thinking, that sounds like a nightmare. Others, where can I get one of those calendars? (laughs) Friends, God, don't laugh too much on that one, right? 
You hurt the person's feelings next to you. God never put Adam and Eve on the 44-day-a-year plan. It was never his intent. Married, married couples, let me just speak to you for a minute. Maybe you haven't talked about your physical relationship for a long time. Maybe there are past hurts and pains that you are tempted to think are just easier to avoid. Maybe one of you has been caught up in some sort of sexual sin. Maybe at various points, sex in your marriage has been used as a bargaining chip or or as leverage to get what you want in the marriage. Friends, I know this is an extremely personal, vulnerable, difficult, challenging part of marriage. But God says it's worth it. It's worth the time, it's worth the energy, it's worth the effort, it's worth you as a couple discussing, apologizing, getting help if you need it. Never be afraid, never be embarrassed, never be ashamed to go get help for this area of your marriage if you are struggling. In fact, do it sooner than later. It is worth doing whatever you as a couple need to do so that this area of your relationship can get back on track and start moving towards the oneness and togetherness and covenant intimacy that God so longs for you to have. And before I move on, let me just say one more thing to the more uh, mature couples in our church. There's this, this wonderful couple verses in the book of Proverbs, the the wisdom literature of the scriptures, right? Like, here's how to live wisely. This is what the writer says. This is Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Now, The phrase I'll focus on here is not the one you think I'll focus on. It's actually the one that says, May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. What's the implication here? Yeah. The implication is that neither she nor he is a youth any longer. Friends, the Bible plan, the Bible's plan for sexuality and marriage is that it would continue even into your old age. Even through changes and challenges and health issues, God says this, Husbands and wives, keep enjoying one another physically in whatever ways you can. All right. I'm shifting gears here. Now, singles. In case you thought we'd forgotten you in this series, we have not. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to skip down. We're back to Paul's instruction to the early church around sex and sexuality. Skipping down to verse 27. These are some great verses, 27 and 28. Instead of reading them, I just want to paraphrase them for you. Here's what Paul says in a nutshell. He says, are you married? He's talking to the people in the church. Are you married? He's talking about sex in the church, right? Are you married? Great. Don't try to become single. Good advice, right? Are you single, he says. Great! Don't be too eager to get married. Actually, he goes on to say, marriage is a lot of work. Marriage can be a headache. If you're married, he says, that's fine. That's a great way to live as a follower of Jesus. If you're single, he says, that's fine. That's also a great way to be as a follower of Jesus. Friends, do you hear how radical and amazing this statement is? You don't. (laughs) Because you don't live in first century Corinth. We live in 21st century, very individualistic America. We live in a society that actually promotes and celebrates singleness on some level. This society did not. We have no idea how important marriage and family was in that culture. If you were not married with children, in that culture you were no one. You had no significance in this society of all, at all. Now, what's funny is that in our world, in our culture, it's not marriage and family that give you significance, it's what? Sex and romance. Yeah, money and power too, but sex and romance in this area. Sex and romance are ultimate. Our world says this, if you want your life to have meaning, if you want to ultimately be satisfied and fulfilled, have great sex. Experience the, wonder, the wonders of heart-pounding romance. Find the person who is the one. The one that completes you. That's what our world says. Now, what's striking is that we in the church have in so many ways adopted this way of thinking. But the Bible 
actually does not say this at all. The Bible says quite the opposite. The Bible, while holding to one of the highest views of sex and sexuality, the Bible actually lifts up sex within marriage as a sacrament. But at the same time, the Bible says this. It's quite all right to live your entire life without it. It's quite all right. No big deal at all to live your entire life without romance and sex. Friends, in fact, the same way the gospel, in the same way that our covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ empowers and reflects in marriage, it also empowers and is reflected in singles. Both are empowered by and reflect back to the world the gospel, marriage and singlehood. Empowered by the gospel, reflect back to the world the gospel. Here's how. In marriage... The reason you can actually live covenantally, the reason you can, the the reason you're empowered to put down your own needs and say, I'm going to put you and the relationship above myself, is because, because your needs are already fully met in Jesus, in the gospel. You've already found ultimate satisfaction and completion in the covenant relationship you have with God through Christ. And since you come into the relationship already satisfied, you don't need to use your spouse to complete you. They don't become like a venue for your own self-satisfaction. It turns out Jerry Maguire was wrong. Shocking, isn't it? And so now, fueled by the gospel, your marriage looks different. It does not look like consumerism. I need you to make me feel better about myself. It looks covenantal. I feel better about myself in Christ. I feel fine in Christ, complete in Christ, whole in Christ. And now I am free to invest in the relationship without having to suck off of you. You see that? This is actually what Paul says in Ephesians. That the marriage relationship should tell the story of Christ and the church. How we relate to each other in marriage is a testimony. It testifies to the covenant relationship that we have with Christ. And so one of the questions today, if you are married, is this. What story is your marriage telling? What story is your marriage telling? Is it telling a covenantal story? A gospel story? Or just another story about consumerism. Now here's where it gets cool. The gospel does not just empower marriage to live and tell the covenantal relationship. Paul says the gospel also empowers and is told through the single life as well. This is why Paul says, if you're single, great! If you never get married and have a family, that is fine. If sex and romance are never a part of your experience here on earth, that is not a problem in the least. How can he say this? Our world scoffs at this. This goes against everything our culture like sends our way, doesn't it? Here's what Paul says. Paul says, because if you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, you don't need someone else to complete you because you are complete in him already. One of the questions that we uh, that was filled out on the cards that you send in, asked this, what does a God-honoring single life look like? I've been wrestling with that question all week. What does a God, how will I answer this question? What does a God-honoring single life look like? Here's how I believe the scriptures answer. It's a life that declares to the world, I have all I need in Jesus. I am a full and complete person. There is not some gaping hole in my life because I am not married and because I am not having sex. And by the way, married people in the church, we are the worst. We should be the best, but we are the worst at pushing unbiblical attitudes and feelings onto our single brothers and sisters. The church has not been a safe place for singles to be whole, right? We've kind of adopted the world's mentality. I was just reading an article this week written by a a single Christian woman in her mid-30s, and she said, far and away, the number one question she gets asked in church is this, why aren't you married? Like, there's something wrong with her. Like, there's something incomplete about her life. Like, she's like, you know, an alien or something. Why aren't you married? Friends, that's the message of the world. Our culture says sex is so important that if you aren't having it, you are not really living. You are insignificant. Your life is not complete. But the Bible scoffs at this, friends. The Bible says, oh, the sex is great. It's the sacramental thing in marriage. Oh, you're not having sex? Eh, oh well. Not a big deal. Like there's way bigger things out there in the kingdom of God than just sex, right? 
single people who are here today, let me say that you are so important to this community. You have the chance to live and tell the gospel story through your single life in a way that we married folks can not. You are so essential to the gospel narrative. You speak it in such a powerful way. You are not a second-class citizen in the church, and you're certainly not in this church. But let me challenge you. Let me ask you this question, and it's actually the same question I asked the married folks. What story is your singleness telling? Are you living singly, sexually, in a way that says, I'm fully satisfied and complete in Jesus? Or, or, are you seeking fulfillment in other places? Does your life say, Jesus is not enough for me? And I want to be real careful here to say this. I think it is okay as a single person to feel like you would like to be married someday or married again someday. But to pine for that, to yearn for that, to let that rob you of the peace and joy and satisfaction God offers you right now as a full, complete, whole, single adult, that is not the story God offers you. It's not the story of the gospel. It is not the story you were meant to tell. You see, the gospel, the covenant relationship we can now have with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus radically redefines both marriage and singleness. So now... Finally, how do we embrace it? How do we live God-honoring lives sexually in a world that at every turn seeks to want to derail us and pull us off course? Friends, this is and was the most frequently asked question on your cards. Again, it came in various forms, but it was overwhelming. How do we do this? How do we do this as married folks with struggles and limitations and different levels of desire? How do we do this as singles? How do we do this as young people who are getting married later in life? How do we do this as people with flesh and hormones and sex drives? Friends, let me first tell you how I think we don't do it. The message of the gospel is not simply A, Pray really hard and God, if he loves you, will magically remove all your struggles, desires, and difficulties. Transformation in the scriptures rarely, if ever, happens through fairy dust sprinkled down from heaven. It's not how transformation works in the Bible. Nor does it happen uh, this way. Now you know the rules, do your best, and try really hard to follow them. God's standards have been laid out, and now you're on your own. Buckle down, you know, pull up your bootstraps, and give it like your best college try. No, friends, I think Paul would say it this way. He's, Neither of those approaches will work. Neither of those approaches are the biblical way of embracing transformation in every area of life, including sexually. I think Paul would say it this way. Genuine transformation usually involves training not just trying. Genuine transformation usually involves training, not just trying. Let me define training for you. I found that this, this week. This is amazing. Training. I arrange my life around those activities through which I gain the power to do what I cannot now do by direct effort. I arrange my life around those activities through which I gain the power to do what I cannot now do by direct effort. Let's take physical training um, as an example. How many in this room, by show of hands, this is going to be a participatory moment, so if you're sleeping, tune back in on me right now. I know it's a little warm in here. How many in this room, by show of hands, if you had to, could leave here today, go home, change clothes, and run, not walk, run a marathon? How many in this room? Go home, change clothes, and right now, today, this afternoon, run. Hold your hands high. Be proud. I was actually amazed at how few people raised their hands in the first service, which makes uh, Matt and I think we're going to definitely do a series on health and exercise next. <laughs> right? Okay, so we have a group. We have a group. They're raising their hand. up. I, I, I could do it, right? All right, second question. How many in this room, by show of hands, if you had to, could leave here today, go home, change clothes, and run a marathon if you tried really, 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 really hard? We're running the whole thing. <laughs> Not on a bike or in a car. 
<laughs> That's my wife heckling me from the front row, by the way. Um, which is great. Uh, she doesn't realize I have the mic and I will win this war and then lose later. But okay, okay. Um, so we're back. So did you notice that the difference in hands was not that great? People who said, I could do it. And people who said, if I tried really, really, really hard, I could do it. How about the same, right? Now, my guess is this, that almost every person in this room, or at least a large number of us, could eventually run a marathon if we set aside time and energy to what? Train for it. And again, the point is this. Genuine transformation in all areas of life usually involves training, not just trying. In case you wonder if this is biblical, again, Paul to the Corinthians, talking to them about transformation in all the areas of their lives. This is what he says. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. He's saying there's people who train and train and train so they can win a race and get a wreath on their head that will wither and die. He's saying the thing we're training for is like the advancement of our character, the closeness of our souls to God. And he's calling the church to engage in highly advanced training. Not magic transformation fairy dust. Not trying really hard. Training. You see, the message of the Bible is not try really, really hard to live out your sexuality in a certain way. To follow the rules in this area. Here's why that won't work. Sexual struggles are hard. Temptations in this area are real. Hormones are powerful. You are not strong enough to win this battle and run this race by yourself. Two medical doctors, Young and Adams, writing about human sexuality say this, Nothing interferes with logic and common sense and willpower more than the sex drive. For years, this was referred to as the brain relocation phenomenon, which occurs in moments of passion. Here's how it works. Once hormones kick in, the brain dislodges from the skull and begins moving down the body through the neck, shoulders, chest, stomach, and finally below the waist. This process takes 20 to 30 minutes for women and about three seconds for men. (laughs) Now that's a funny kind of deal, but the principle is true. And the principle is this. Your sexual desires, your hormones, are very, very, very powerful. And you will not be able to overcome these desires by sheer willpower. What you'll need to do is train. What you'll need to do is create some space for a deeper desire, a stronger desire, greater than your flesh and hormones, to take root in your life and empower you to live and be a different person. This is why... I think accountability falls sometimes so far short. You know, men are always in accountability groups, right? right? Women are in support groups. But guys are in accountability groups, right? And this is why accountability groups don't always work. It's why some of you have been in accountability groups and you've walked away with a bad taste in your mouth. You've walked away feeling less hopeful than you were going in. Here's what accountability groups do often. They push the sin away and then they say, how can we hold it at bay? They take the first step of sin management, right? But what they never do is let something grow in the space that's been created. They never take the second crucial, important step of cultivating something deeper, a stronger, better, uh, richer desire in the space that was created from the accountability. This is Food is another great example in this area. I don't just not eat half gallons of ice cream because I know it's bad. Because it's a wrong choice and my wife will be angry, right? I'm telling you, I love to eat full half-gallon jugs of ice cream in a sitting. I used to do this regularly in college. I can still do it today. I know I shouldn't. I know it's bad. And so I don't do it very often. But if I stopped there... Every now and then, I would still slip into the bad habit of grabbing a half gallon in a moment of weakness on a Sunday night after a long, exhausting sermon on sex, and I would just pound, and before I know it, the thing is gone. Friends, I don't just not do it because I know it's bad. I do it because there's a greater desire in me now to what? Be healthy. You see, I have to develop a desire that is stronger 
than the evil desires of my flesh, than the desires that are seeking to take me off track. The gospel says this, we don't just move away from something, we move towards something. We don't just resist powerful desires, we cultivate stronger desires for something else. For Jesus, for God, for life in the kingdom, for the joy and peace and fullness and satisfaction that only life with him and in him and through him can bring, we must cultivate those desires. Then we can overcome the sexual desires that will seek to lead us astray. Are you struggling sexually? The question is, how is your training going? Have you arranged your life around activities that cultivate deep desire and identity and joy and peace and satisfaction and strength in Jesus? Are you growing to desire Him more than the thing your flesh is pushing you to? All right. We have to end this at some point. How do we respond to this series? Because uh, one of the things in a series like this is that it does highlight and does kind of lift out the deep brokenness many of us uh, feel in this area. And so I want to say this. Our God is a God of mercy. He's a God who loves to show mercy. He's a God who's dying to show mercy. He's a God who's, who's more than anything wants you to understand that there's nothing you can do to earn his love. That there's no brokenness or sin or failure in your life too strong or too great for him to reach out and rescue you and pull you back into his loving arms. You see, God wants to come in the midst of our sexual brokenness when all of a sudden we've realized how evil and broken and depraved we are and say, good, that's exactly where I want you to be because now you're in the perfect position to understand the gospel, grace, free love, the undeserved love of God. But friends, it's not just forgiveness that he offers. His grace is not just for forgiveness. His grace is offered for the power to live a new life, to transcend the places of brokenness that we all face. And so this morning, I just want to ask you to consider where God is calling you to train, to push back some sin, create some space, and cultivate some deeper desires for and with him. Maybe there's some hidden practices that just need to come into the light. Maybe you've tried on your own and you just need to tell somebody you need to get help. Maybe you're dating and you just need to establish or reestablish or rethink through some of your boundaries. Maybe there are some situations you've been putting yourself in and the truth is this, you just need to stop Maybe you're keenly aware that we live in a society that idolizes sexual attractiveness and a society where beauty is power, so you find yourself too attached to the need to appear sexually desirable. Maybe you find yourself jealous of other people who you think are more sexually desirable than you are. Maybe you're tempted to flirt, to prove that you have value. Maybe you carry around some real deep guilt in this area. Maybe it's the guilt of being pregnant outside of marriage or impregnating someone outside of marriage. Maybe that pregnancy was even terminated with an abortion. Maybe you have difficulty with pornography. Maybe you're a business person and the truth is sometimes when you go on hotel trips and you're lonely and you're in a room, you watch adult movies. Maybe... You sit here this morning and the thing that's weighing on your mind is that you've had an affair. Maybe no one knows about it, but it's there and you can't forget it. Maybe you struggle with some form of sexual addiction, maybe with homosexual feelings. Maybe the truth is, right now in your life, you're sort of flirting, you're sort of drifting towards disaster in one way or another, and you've been kind of playing games with an area of your life that you have no business playing with. Friends, the truth is that Jesus' teaching brings us back to here. It brings us back to this place where we must acknowledge the truth about ourselves. We need to acknowledge the truth of who we really are and who we are before God. And then you need to hear this. God loves to forgive. He loves to to redeem. He loves to restore. He loves to take lives that are headed this direction and turn them around and send them off this way. Some of you who carry deep burdens, deep guilt in this area, you need to hear this. There is nothing you have ever done so bad that it cannot be covered by the love and grace and blood of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Nothing. 
There's nothing stronger than that cross right there. There is nothing stronger than the Savior who went to the grave and then defeated death on your behalf. There is forgiveness. There is hope. There is peace. There is redemption. There is a new life offered to you in Christ, even in the area of your sexuality. Even in the place of your deepest brokenness and darkest pain, there is hope for you. There is new life for you. Reach out and take it. He's offering it today. Friends, how I'd like for us to respond and end this series is this way. Do not walk out of here without new resolution in this area of your life. We've spent five weeks talking about it, a very deep, very sensitive area that impacts every single person in this room. Do not walk out of here this morning without hearing from God, at least on some level, about something and then responding to it. Friends, this morning I want to give you just some space at the end of this service to just sit and reflect, ask God, ask the Spirit to to bring things to mind, and then to make a commitment to enter some training, to to receive the grace of God, to hear again that he loves you no matter what, and then to say, God, what does it look like for me to, to sort of push back the sin, create some space, and begin to cultivate something new? If you're brave enough today, and I know this can be uncomfortable, I know this can be challenging, we're gonna have some people around the outsides of the room. Part of the ways that we do this is together. You heard it this morning in this testimony. This is not something we can do alone. There's something so powerful about not just thinking, not just praying, but speaking out the truth, speaking out conviction, speaking out sin, and putting it into the light. Maybe here this morning and you just need someone to listen. Maybe you need to confess. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to, as a couple or as a single or as an individual, recommit to something that that you're committed to but maybe you've gotten off path or maybe you're on the right path and you just want to say again let's stay right here let's keep going this direction maybe there's a friend and you know they're hurting and you just need to pray with someone about it there's gonna be folks around the outside of the room i know the first service people were just like there's no way i'm gonna get up and talk to somebody and after the sex talk right but we've talked about this being the church right The, the safest place to be sexually broken and vulnerable and honest and transparent. And so if God lays it on your heart, if there's something you need to do today and you need to do that with somebody, have the courage. Trust that this is a safe place, that this is a gospel community, that you are amongst friends, sinners, other broken people who need just as much grace as you. So the tables are going to be open. Come, remember the power that we have in Christ through his death and resurrection. And then spend some time with the Lord. Spend some time talking and praying with someone. And we'll close in a few minutes with some worship. I'll pray and then we'll open the tables. Father, thank you. Jesus, thank you for reminding me this week that you are enough. That all I really need is you. And that there's so much freedom in that to live selflessly and gracefully. God, thank you for your faithfulness to forgive us in sin. Thank you for the power to to overcome. Help us, God, be a church that creates space, but then cultivates something more. May people look at us and may they see covenant because there's deep relationship in our hearts with you. That's our prayer, God. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.